A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Today we talk about the War of Spanish Succession. And this is the second part of four. In the town of Woodstock, not far from Oxford, stands a monumental country house, Blenheim Palace. One of England's largest houses, the palace was built between the years 1705 and 1722 and designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1987. The palace is named after the Battle of Blenheim of 1704 in Bavaria as a reward to John Churchill, 1st Duke of Marlborough, for his military triumphs against the French and Bavarians in the War of Spanish Succession. The palace is also notable as the birthplace and the ancestral home of Sir Winston Churchill, a descendant of the first Duke of Marlborough. Marlborough had commanded troops effectively in Ireland early in the Nine Years' War. His capture of the cities of Cork and Kinsale in October 1690 marked him as a commander of merit, but he was suspected, falsely, of plotting for James II against William. He would not again achieve royal favour until William began to prepare his forces for renewed war with France at the start of the Spanish War of Succession. William's death in March 1702 further strengthened Marlborough's position because he was already close to Queen Anne, who succeeded William. Marlborough's wife, Sarah, had been a favourite of Queen Anne since the 1690s, as portrayed by a recent Hollywood film from the year 2018 called The Favourite. As described in the previous episode, the first engagements of the war in northern Italy went badly for France. The forces which were combining against Louis XIV of France and his grandson, Philip, who had just accepted the crown of Spain, were impressive. The English, Dutch and Austrians could count on the support of Hanover, Brandenburg, which is soon to be known as Prussia, Denmark and several German princes of the Empire. By contrast, Louis XIV could only count on as allies Savoy, Bavaria, the bishopric of Liège and a rather reluctant Portugal. And Philip V's Spanish troops were in general ill-equipped and poorly trained. Nevertheless, the French king had the benefit of a central position with a large and well-equipped army ready to deploy where he saw fit. The war had numerous fronts, 
as well as Spain, the Spanish Netherlands, along the River Rhine between France and Germany, and northern Italy. In addition, the Austrian Habsburgs were hindered by a major rebellion in Hungary, which was encouraged by France. And in the early years of the campaign, the French were distracted by unrest in the southern province of Languedoc. There, a revolt by a group of Protestants known as the Camisards, after the white shirts they wore, was supported by the anti-French allies. During the opening moves of the northern campaign, the French lost a handful of fortresses on the Rhine and east of the river Moise. But they established a firm defensive line in Flanders, that is, the Spanish Low Countries, west of the Moise. In June 1702, Marlborough arrived to take command of the 60,000-strong Anglo-Dutch army. The most significant gain of that year for the Allies on the Flemish front was the capture of Liège, and next spring they also took Bonn. Progress was steady, but not as great as hoped. Marlborough expressed frustration that he could have achieved more were it not for the Dutch being overly cautious. The author John Lynn writes out Marlborough's correspondence as full of sound and fury as to how he wanted to fight decisive engagements, but was held in check by the conservative foot-dragging of the Dutch. But Lynn believes there is good reason to suspect this is a self-serving analysis. He considers that English historians often take Marlborough's complaints too much at face value and underestimate the Dutch contribution. Throughout the war, the French relied on a series of entrenched lines designed to stop enemy raiders and to make the advance of enemy armies difficult. They were made up of garrisoned fortresses, fortified by the military engineer Vauban. Meanwhile, along the Rhine, the imperial commander, Louis Margrave of Baden, took the town of Landau, but was defeated in October 1702 at the Battle of Friedelingen. For the French, this victory opened the path between Elector Max of Emmanuel of Bavaria on the Danube with the French on the Rhine. As for Spain, the major action of 1702 came with a failed Anglo-Dutch amphibious assault on Cadiz. On the voyage back to England, Admiral Rook attacked a Spanish silver fleet protected by the French. The French lost all 13 of their war vessels, which was a major blow, and Rook sailed back to England with a hoard of Spanish silver. After observing this demonstration of Anglo-Dutch naval power, the Portuguese king was convinced to change sides and to join the Grand Alliance. Also, from then on, the French navy were never strong enough to send out a fleet strong enough to challenge the Anglo-Dutch control of the seas. In 1703, Anglo-Dutch fleets confirmed their mastery of the western Mediterranean by securing Sicily and Sardinia for the Austrian Habsburgs. In November 1702, the Duke of Savoy, Victor Amadeus, also switched sides to the Grand Alliance in exchange for a substantial subsidy from the English. With help from Imperial troops, the Duke fought as best he could to hold off the French the following year, but Franco-Spanish forces began a systematic conquest of Piedmont and Savoy. The French offensive continued the next two years, leaving the embattled Duke isolated in Turin. 
The next year the campaign on the Rhine turned decisively in favour of the French and Bavarians. Louis XIV's talented general, Marshal Villars, led an effective campaign that brought his army to the Danube, linked up with that of Bavaria and won notable victories against the imperial forces at Kiel and Neuburg, and captured Ratisbon, or Regensburg, site of the imperial Diet, in April. The Franco-Bavarian armies went on that year to take control of much of southern Germany, having defeated the Imperial Army at the Battle of Hochstadt on the 29th of September and were in a position to threaten Vienna. Marshal Villars proposed to Max Emmanuel to march directly on the Imperial capital. The elector at first went along with the plan, but much to the frustration of Villars decided against it after a setback at the town of Amberg. Max Emmanuel chose instead to embark on a campaign in the Tyrol, where his army faced heavy resistance from local militia, while Villa simply held the Rhine. Therefore, with the French and the Bavarians unable to agree on a strategy, they missed a golden opportunity to strike at the heart of the Austrian territory and so allowed the Allies to rally. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. With stalemate in the Low Countries and Vienna in danger, in March 1704, Queen Anne of England gave her consent for Marlborough to take his troops from the Spanish Netherlands to southern Germany and to confront the French and Bavarians. The potential danger to the Dutch border was real, and the risk had to be balanced against the danger to Vienna. Marlborough was able to assure the Dutch states general that the French would not be able to ignore his march southwards, and would have to quickly deploy their own forces to meet the new threat. Part of the ploy was to keep the French guessing about Marlborough's intent. On the 19th of May, he set off from Bedburg near Cologne, at the head of 14 battalions of infantry and 39 cavalry squadrons. The French commander, Marshal Vidois, suspecting he intended to campaign along the river Moselle, hurried to block his route into France. The Allied army started early each morning, rousing at four and marching at five. By the 29th of May, Marlborough's columns had reached Koblenz, where his forces crossed the right bank of the Rhine, and the following day added 5,000 Hanoverians and Prussians to his army. 
As they progressed south, the French were kept guessing as to their final destination, perhaps Philipsburg or Landau. On the 7th of June, with the crossing of the Neckar into Germany, the French finally realised Marlborough's intentions. Then, on the 22nd of June, Marlborough linked up with the imperial forces of Louis Margrave of Baden at the town of Launsheim. Remarkably, a distance of 400 kilometres, or 250 miles, had been covered in just five weeks, and thanks to a careful planning and management of logistics, the effects of wear and tear had been kept to a minimum. The pursuing French army under General Tallard suffered considerably more than Marlborough's troops on their march and were much slower. Marlborough needed a base for provisions and a good river crossing. On the 2nd of July, therefore, Marlborough stormed the fortress of Schellenberg on the heights above the town of Donauwerth. Count Jean Darco was sent with 12,000 men from the Franco-Bavarian camp to hold the town, but after a ferocious battle inflicting enormous casualties on both sides, Schellenberg finally succumbed, forcing Donauwerth to surrender shortly afterwards. Negotiations with Max Emmanuel to persuade him to abandon his alliance with France failed, despite his wife urging him to come to terms with the Allies. The elector carefully avoided a confrontation, waiting for French reinforcements to arrive. So Marlborough resorted to harrying the Bavarian countryside in order to put pressure on the elector either to fight or to come to terms before Tallard arrived with reinforcements. The Allies let loose their cavalry in a campaign of destruction across the countryside. James Faulkner writes that the extent of this notorious campaign may have been exaggerated, but it was nevertheless brutal tactics and caused much misery among the local population. Either way, the action did succeed in compelling the Bavarian troops to deploy to protect the elector's property, diminishing the strength of the Franco-Bavarian army. Despite the destruction, the elector held firmly to his alliance with the French. When Tallard finally arrived in Bavaria on the 6th of August, the French appeared to have checked Marlborough's campaign. No longer did the Allies have a significant superiority in numbers, and if no set battle took place, Marlborough would have to return home and explain why he had taken his army so far for so little benefit. On the 12th of August, Tallard camped behind the river Nebel near the village of Blenheim. The combined armies of Marlborough and Eugene of Savoy, numbering some 56,000, launched their attack the next day shortly after midday. The Franco-Bavarian forces were not expecting battle and rushed to get into position. On the right flank, the French under Tallard, and on the left, the Bavarian troops, together with more French troops under Marshal Marsan. Marlborough attempted to use the classic tactic of threatening the flanks of a foe and then smashing through the weakened centre. He recognised the villages of Blenheim and Oberglau, respectively on the right and left flanks of the French forces, as key points in his foe's lines and he focused his attacks there to draw the enemy attention. The French overreacted and concentrated too many troops on their right flank in Blenheim, falling into the trap of leaving their centre weakened. 
the Franco-Bavarian left flank, meanwhile, enjoyed a numerical advantage, and so were able to blunt the attack of Eugene of Savoy. Marlborough then massed a considerable force of 81 fresh squadrons and 19 battalions in the open ground between the villages and struck the centre. Initially, French charges brought some time, but a final Allied offensive at about 5.30 in the afternoon broke the back of the enemy. Losses mounted quickly, and by the end of the battle, as many as 20,000 French and Bavarians lay dead or wounded. The Allies suffered perhaps 13,000 casualties, and they captured about 14,000 enemy soldiers, including the French commander Tallard. The shock of such a devastating defeat was simply not believed at Versailles until the truth was confirmed. As a result of the battle, Bavaria was overrun and the elector fled to the Spanish Netherlands, leaving his duchy subject to a harsh Austrian administration. The military prestige of France was irreparably damaged and that of both Marlborough and Eugene of Savoy were greatly elevated. As a reward for the victory, Queen Anne elevated John Churchill from the Earl to Duke of Marlborough. King Louis XIV of France was deeply concerned and put out peace feelers offering to concede on giving the Spanish crown to Archduke Charles in exchange for France acquiring territory in Lorraine and part of the Spanish Netherlands. The Allies, each of their different priorities, jointly decided to reject the offer. The Dutch in particular were keen to maintain the Spanish Netherlands as a buffer between themselves and France. They therefore rejected the offer and the war continued. My name is Carl Rylett and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com. Please go to patreon.com stroke history Europe, where for $3 a month you can gain some extra material. It's always great to hear from you, either on the Facebook page, Twitter, at History Europe KB, KB for Key Battles, or you can write to me directly, Carl, that's C-A-R-L, at HistoryEurope.net. The music I will leave you with today is a piece by the French composer Jean-Philippe Rameau. It is called Gavotte and Variations, Gavotte being a very popular folk dance of the French people of the 18th century.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 